0: Welcome to Your Bible, custom designed Your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, Pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director.
1: Hey, everybody!
0: And so uh, we walk through Joel, Ezekiel, uh, Hebrews, and First Timothy today, and uh, so we'll wrap up uh, Joel, and so we keep going with that locust plague that you read this week, uh, and this time some of the language is a little more militaristic. Uh, so uh, as it seems like a, a decent chunk of commentators uh, all go in the direction that uh, the analogy is certainly meant to convey uh, uh, the possibly the Babylonian army uh, and the way they, they sort of taken over the land. Was there a literal locust plague? Uh, maybe. Uh, but uh, I think the analogy is kind of playing out in that text.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the cool things here is that Joel talks about the sun and the moon being darkened and the earth quaking before them. And I hope some of that imagery caused you to think about the crucifixion. And so you think about this day of the Lord and this judgment. And then we think about how when Christ died, the sun and the moon were darkened and the earth quaked. And so I think we get another picture, an example through the crucifixion of that the day of the Lord, this judgment came on Jesus Christ for our sins, as exemplified here through Joel.
0: Yeah, yeah. Certainly there's a... that that phrasing and the same thing when Jesus talks to the disciples about the fall of the temple, that same sort of phrasing will exist again of the darkening of the cloud or the darkening of the moon, earthquakes and stuff like that. So these days of judgment, these, these pivotal days in, in God's history, um, tend to carry with it a similar motif. Uh, and then, uh, as, as before, we kind of got the conversation around the locust plague and then a call to repentance in chapter one. We get the same thing in chapter two, mm-hmm. the conversation around the locust plague. And then once again, a plea to repent that, um, that, that, that to remember their, their past actions, to humble themselves, uh, and return to the Lord. Uh, even though that's phrasing of like rend, don't just rend your garment, rend your heart. Like this grief should be internalized for you, not just the outward expression of it. Like it should hit your own, seed of your emotions and, and, and you should feel this grief. And so, yeah.
1: It's such a good reminder in Joel, here of the goodness of God, his gracious, merciful, slow to anger and full of steadfast love. And we're reminded of the goodness of God within the midst of this invitation to return and be restored. And for us, I think sometimes we hold back from repenting. We hold back from confessing because we're ashamed or we're stubborn or we're afraid of God. But when we do that, you guys, we are missing out. God is gracious and merciful. He is ready with open arms to welcome us back. He's slow to anger. And so this work of repentance is an invitation for restoration which is good and healing and i think it's an individual work but it's also a communal work within entire communities and nations and peoples like we see here in joel
0: yeah and then we start seeing these messages of hope pop up in this book and uh and this is where i I think it becomes easier to possibly date this book that it does feel like look this plague ran through this whole city but those who of you who remain it's almost like a message of those who have sort of gotten stuck in Jerusalem who didn't end up in captivity but have survived the Babylonian kind of conquest that that there's hope for you guys there will be one day restoration then and they um they will pay back all that the locusts destroyed that God will pay back all that the locusts destroyed and so um there's starting to be this this picture of hope for these people
1: Yeah, something I've expressed before talking about the podcast that I struggle with is how much judgment and wrath we read about. But here we see so clearly that God's grace is greater than any sin. And this promise that we're given culminates in God being in the midst of Israel. And so sure, we want to eat plenty and be satisfied like it talks about with Israel, but our true restoration and joy and peace comes from the very presence of God with us, his people
0: and uh, then we hear this sort of phrasing around how in some some point during this future restoration that God is going to pour out a spirit on all flesh and so uh there's a there's a language there that's not just talking about restoring, Israel right after the Babylonian captivity. There's there's definitely a language there that is beyond that of of this unique shift that, that's going to happen in history. The one that uh, Peter, if you remember back in Acts 2 when Peter delivers his Pentecost message, set, points out this text in Joel, like this: these are the last days. This is what Joel had talked about when a spirit suddenly is poured out both in Jew and Gentile-like. Uh, and yeah, and before we go down deep, dark holes of blood moons and stuff like that. remember like a good number of these signs have been connected to the prophets in the past. Like some of the language around, uh, the stars and the moon and earthquakes and stuff like that, like has just been connected to God's judgment. And so there are definitely books and ways that people will use that and hijack that to be like, well, that's all about the future. But, but this is all language that did exist there. And not only that, but we, we have historical record, even from some of the uh, astrologers and stuff in Babylon, that some of this stuff really did take place. And so, um, we should remember that the audience is probably going to hear some of these things and, and think of their own context.
1: You know, I, when I was reading this part about, uh, God pouring out His spirit and Pentecost and everything like that, I was just thinking of the Jews who'd read this for, you know, 550 years more than that, before it happened. Um, They were longing for it and reading about it and hoping for it. And yet here we are on the receiving end of the Spirit. um, And then we have been given this gospel of Jesus Christ that we can share with the ends of the earth. It's cool to think about our view of it versus the original reader's. And listeners to this message.
0: And then God moves into some uh, trash talking of the nations, it feels like. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, some of the godless nations like Babylon and stuff like that, that God is sort of like, look, like I'm coming to destroy you guys. And I love that Joel even uses um, prophecy, a language around uh, from Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 where it said like, they will beat their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Like those, those two prophecies are dealing with like one day, war will be no more and stuff like that. But here, Joel switches the analogy and says this to God's enemies is that beat your plowshare and a sword or your pretty hooks and spear basically God's saying like look go and arm up because i'm about to come and i'm about to <laughs> destroy you guys uh, arm yourself be ready because i'm about to let loose and so um it's interesting for joel to take up those things and kind of use it in sort of god's trash talk here
1: and a huge portion of this judgment is focused on the fact that the people were practicing slavery and mistreatment of others. And so one thing for us to see and acknowledge here is that God's grace can often include the defeat and judgment of those who have become his enemies by oppressing his creation, his image bearers.
0: Yeah. And it, it sort of caps with this restoration of the land, this sort of finale. And it's interesting because Joel does bookend this book. We sort of saw the opening mm-hmm. where uh, it seemed like um, Israel thought they were about to get to enjoy this wine and it was snatched from their hands but then sort of it's finished with this idea of this it'll be like mountains dripping with sweet wine this this sense of loss and grief has moved to to kind of full um uh reversal and, and fruition and so um and then joel uses some exodus images and stuff like that as well kind of speaking to the deliverance of the people i think
1: yeah but it's this reiteration of god dwelling with his people and that's everything we'd ever want
0: yep uh final thoughts on joel
1: So I think the more we read about the day of the Lord, not just in Joel, but throughout the prophets, the more it just seems so clear to me that there really is kind of just one distinction in the world, those who are in Christ and those who are not. And so as we consider this terrifying and terrible judgment, um, Christians stand delivered because Christ took that judgment to the cross. And this should compel us to evangelism. And just, I don't know, the more we think about the day of the Lord, I think we should think about how much we want everyone to be standing under the sanctifying and atoning work of Christ on the cross rather than on their own.
0: Yeah. And, for me, I mean, I think Joel, Ezekiel, some of these books that we're starting to read become these the shift. Like, I think there were prophets that spoke before the fall of the North and the South who were all full of warnings and all this and maybe had like a chapter of hope or maybe just a small section of hope. And then you had some that were speaking of the woes and the suffering and stuff like that and usually just included maybe like a little bit of hope or a little bit of future. And now Joel and Ezekiel and some of these other prophets we're going to read start moving towards like, look, we've learned our lesson. Like we are in this situation now. Let's talk about hope. Let's talk about what's coming. And so like half of Joel is, is a future orientation of hope. And so um, Mm -hmm. we're going to see a little bit of that shift. And Ezekiel is going to be like a third of the book. is going to be kind of the future orientation. And so um, just just this sort of constant reminder, it's almost like the gospel message through the prophets. Like there was sin and it led us to death and isolation from God. and, And that's where we were. But yet, we have to remember that God hasn't abandoned. And he's provided hope and he's provided salvation. He does not forget about his people. Mm. And so, yeah. Uh, and then we move into Ezekiel, uh, which we'll be in for several weeks because it's not a short one. Uh, but, uh, this is a, a book that, uh, it seems to be, have been written. Um, so with the, with the siege and the fall of Jerusalem and Judah, uh, it came in waves. It didn't just all happen at once. And there was, um, at least a first wave of captives taken out to Babylon. Uh, and likely Ezekiel is one of those first group of captives and, while uh in Babylon, he sort of has this experience, this, this this vision and everything else around his job as a prophet. Uh and um and so some of it's gonna be about what's still happening in Judah, some of it'll be directed towards the the people in exile, all those sort of things all in this book. There's there's kind of um a, a lot going on. Uh it's interesting because Ezekiel himself uh seems to have been a priest in training uh and this that plays into even the very opening of the book. Uh, And then what you'll find uh, is probably two different areas uh, that'll be kind of new to kind of walk through. Uh, The first is sort of apocalyptic literature. This is probably our first book to really get into some of this. Uh, Zechariah, Daniel, Revelation. We'll deal with it more in those books, but we'll start getting glimpses in this book, which I think the best way to start thinking about apocalyptic literature um, is uh, is at least think immediate. That it tends to be images and symbols that, that actually tend to convey hope in their present day. Um, there's usually it feels sensational with their imagery, but it's actually meant to convey hope. And then, um, and then there's a lot of prophetic theater in Ezekiel. We've seen A little bit of this in Jeremiah and others, but Ezekiel is going to have a lot of these sections that are like Ezekiel acting out the message that he's supposed to 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 convey. And so, um, even in this first week of reading, you saw this section where there was a bunch of little versions of that all in a row. Uh, and And lastly. As I said, I think back in Matthew, I think it was one of the, the more quoted, at least when Jesus is teaching his parables, the more referenced uh, books in the Old Testament. And so um, as we read, maybe maybe we'll highlight a few of those as we come across them.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that it has so many tie-ins to the parallels of parables of Jesus because there's also one of the prophets with the fewest messianic direct Messianic um, references. Of course, it will point us to our need for a savior like all scripture does but that's something to be aware of and the purpose of the book is to restore God's glory before Israel, who had rejected him, and also so that the other nations could see while they were watching. And I just want to give a qualifier to those of you guys who are getting ready that I have found myself praying, even today as I was studying Ezekiel, asking God to help me love this book, because it's (laughs) been hard for me, and we're only a few chapters into it. And so and I think it may continue to be hard with some of the other stuff. Um, It's okay to ask for God to help you love his word. It's okay to struggle through some books. And I don't want to like, maybe you're not going to be that person, but if you are, it's okay.
0: No, and it's okay. It has historically been that category. And, and mm-hmm. the, the sort of rabbis, the, the Christian interpreters, everyone has sort of said like, Ezekiel's just a hard book to interpret. And so if you get caught up in sections, do not worry about it and keep reading it through. Listen to the podcast. We'll try to give as best insight as we can. Um, and yeah, And so we open with Ezekiel in Babylon. Uh, So this is uh, a a prophet who is in uh, Babylon He's not in his homeland. Um, And he's sitting along the river in Babylon on what seems like his 30th birthday, um, which would have been the year if you were a priest that you would be installed as a priest back home. And so uh, right then he has this vision, almost like an Isaiah kind of moment where he has this vision.
1: Yeah, so the things to know here is it really is setting up the scene for us that we're a few years into the exile, uh, Ezekiel is near but not directly in Babylon, and that he is a priest, which is important, like Chris just mentioned.
0: Now, if you uh, when you read chapter 1, you're probably sitting there going, what is all of the stuff going on here? It feels super sensational. It feels uh, uh, out of this world, and in some ways it should. Like if you are to describe the glory of the Lord in some ways— it's going to sound out of this world and it should, there's nothing wrong with that. And and there's definitely moments in scripture where it definitely feels like that. I think Isaiah's description kind of falls in that same category where it's like, well, there's these animals, all these eyes, it's kind of stuff like that. But at the same time, if you were a Jewish person who had heard the Torah, who'd heard first Kings and heard these descriptions of the temple and um, not only that, but knew a few things from Sinai and the tabernacle, there's almost no images in this ch- first chapter that has not been talked about. And and for most of us, probably don't even catch it because it's some of the most boring sections of scriptures. Like in 1 Kings, when they go into all the details that went into the building of the temple, most of us read through it and we're like, okay cool let's just keep moving but we miss out things like like did you know that there, there were wheels and axles and and basically it was like a chariot the the uh place where the ark was in the temple it was built that way so first king seven goes into from 30 to 36 goes into all these descriptions of the fact that there were wheels and rims and spokes and the hubs were all cast in a certain way and and they had all these uh uh ways that that the that the 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 ark could be movable. And not only that, but there stood uh, twelve oxen where some were facing north, west, south, and east. Um they had these 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 panels with these animal faces like lions and oxen and cherubim. And so you have all this stuff, all this language that should actually be mm-hmm. quite familiar. And there were uh there were two statues of of cherubim in the the holy of holies plus the two that were on top of the ark so there are four winged creatures that had wings touching and so um, if you were in your Jewish mind you'd be like all this stuff sounds familiar and all of it I know of the temple or the tabernacle or or maybe Sinai at moments and so these are the places where god dwells and in this chapter the place where god dwells is not this building that has just got destroyed or is about to be destroyed throughout the book of Ezekiel and temple. It, it is cosmic. It, it is, it is out in Babylon where Marduk is God. Ezekiel's having this vision of God on his throne in a way that like is the temple, but in the sky. And so there's such a cosmic picture here for Ezekiel to, to go, okay, like what he's seeing is that God is not stuck in a destroyed rubble in Israel, but that God is sitting on the throne and he is the God of, of this land as much as he's the God of, of the Middle East or of Israel.
1: Yeah. And what does Ezekiel do? But he falls on his face and worship. This is yeah. a pattern we see when people are confronted with the glory of God.
0: Yeah. And and just so you know, we'll see this imagery again in Daniel. Uh, we'll see it again in revelation. There's, there's, there's a lot of callbacks uh, to this moment. Uh, but Ezekiel has this call and um, he has this, and this is the sort of the dialogue happening in this vision moment that he's called the son of man, a, a phrase you're going to run into plenty of times, somewhere between 80 and a hundred within this book. Um, and, 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 I know we've already read through three of the gospels and there's a lot more to unpack with son of man related to Jesus, but here simply interpreted as like the human one, the moral one, the, the, the son of Adam, you, you are human and God is God. You don't have perspective. You are finite. Um, and that's sort of, I think what's being conveyed in the language here.
1: So I wonder if the imagery that we're getting within this call and with this vision is important for Ezekiel. This is some somewhat conjecture to you, but um, I just wonder if it's so he can really remember the call. It's, it's worth remembering that Ezekiel, like the other prophets, has not done anything to earn this call, but God has chosen to appoint him because God is God. And Ezekiel has this task, and Ezekiel is bound to declare God's word to Israel, Um, but it's going to be hard for him to do, and so he may need this moment to look back at and remember what God has called him to and commanded him to do so he can faithfully walk in obedience
0: yeah and and just to unpack some of the imagery like God basically gives Ezekiel his words the scroll and Ezekiel's to to deposit it to internalize it uh, into himself in mm-hmm. a way and and one day the word of the God deposits will come back out of his mouth and and there are words of lament and mourning and woe and yet to to, to Ezekiel it's like surprisingly sweet and so uh, I think that's an interesting di- dynamic of like look, I'm giving you these words and they're going to be the words that I want you to speak. But, and and they're negative, but at the same time, they're sweet. There's something, there's something good ultimately about them. Uh, and then we're reminded of the hand of the Lord being is strong upon Ezekiel. And so um, God's going to send out Ezekiel in power. Yeah. And uh, God gives Ezekiel this task of speaking, but not of changing hearts himself in some ways. God kind of reminds him multiple times, Ezekiel, be faithful, go speak the word. Don't worry about the results. I'll take care of that part. Just go and be faithful to speak it. Um, and, and in the meantime, he also tells Ezekiel, look out, but I'm going to make you mute. And you're going to be mute for a while. And then at some point, you're going to surprise people when you open up your mouth. It, it, it's as if something supernatural has happened and now you can speak. And so, um, yeah, that's sort of, um, tie into that. And, and I think there's some gospel tie-ins to the mute speaking, but anyways,
1: yeah, it made me think of Zechariah who also was a priest and went mute until he named John who was to, you know, speak of and usher in, uh, Christ.
0: Yeah. And then uh, we get our first uh, glimpse into some of the prophetic theater in this book. Uh, and there's uh, actually, I think not nine different little pieces here. Almost every sentence is like one new uh, little moment. Um, and so the first is that uh, Ezekiel has to make like, a, a Lego set of Jerusalem, this, this brick of Jerusalem being laid siege to and showcase for everybody. Like, look, here's, here's Jerusalem being laid siege to. Uh, and then he makes this metal sheet and, and puts it between him and, 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 um, in Jerusalem, his little model of Jerusalem. And I think it's meant to be like Israel thinks they're going to be protected and it's going to be okay. And then he has to lay on his right side and his left side. It's supposed to be, representing sort of that that punishment those years of punishment um whether it's 70 years in captivity or however long the 390s when it's supposed to represent um and now it's important to to say like because i remember reading this back in the day and be like gosh like ezekiel spent like a year and a half just laying down on the ground um it doesn't necessarily convey that this has to happen all day long, that that he could have laid down for like an hour every day to showcase, to communicate to the people. This is this is what I'm doing, um, because we also see that he also has to cook throughout the day and stuff like that. So who knows? But um, it is meant to showcase the, the punishment that Ezekiel then sort of is like God turning his face away to, to what's happening. There's a binding of Ezekiel, like a scapegoat kind of tied into Israel's sin. Um, there's Ezekiel having to eat the bread, like the people like prisoners and those in captivity. Um, and he has to cook these cakes over excrement. And once again, that's a, just a picture of desperation, sort of a prisoner circumstance that Ezekiel's in. But then he's sort of like a priest. He's like, well, that's not entirely kosher God. I'm not supposed to do that. And God's like, fine, I'll let you use, cow dung instead of human dung. And so, um, yeah, but this picture of desperation of, of, of hunger, um, and that's, what's going to happen for the people.
1: So one of these um, one of these pictures is when Ezekiel is laying on his side and he has to turn his face away from Israel and that is to represent or image kind of God turning his face away from Israel because of their sin and their wickedness. And then as you think about that, let's fast forward to the crucifixion and this time we see God turning his face away again, but he's turning his face away from his one and only Son. Who this you know filth that Ezekiel is representing here is the filth that Jesus bore in our place so that we could be restored to God.
0: And then uh, we kind of keep going uh, this time with hair uh, that he shaves his head and the hairs sort of represent the people of Jerusalem and the thousands of millions of hairs. Um, But there's also an imagery of dishonor and humiliation uh, that would have been part of head shaving. Uh, And then, um, Ezekiel was to, to basically destroy two thirds of the hair, whether by fire or by sword. Um, and then, uh, and then preserve a little bit of hair, but then take some more hair, throw it in air and wave a sword around and kill some of it. And so, um, it's sort of this picture that there will be Israel scattered. Some of those people will die, but there will always still be a remnant. And so there's sort of it's it's actually not the most complicated picture, I think, of all the mm-hmm. pictures we have in Scripture uh, and, and kind of the picture of what's going to happen for those that are still left behind in Judah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And all this is happening uh, because it's judgment on idolatry. And it's interesting because this chapter six uh, includes a lot of what is said in Leviticus 26. Uh, it's Leviticus 26 is a warning of here's what's going to happen to you. Here are the consequences and how they're going to play out if you were to worship idols. And so all those things are almost reiterated in this chapter. Um, so once again, Ezekiel's not saying anything brand new. It just, it's just stuff that isn't the things we read the most. And so uh, he's calling back, um, what God has already said.
1: Yeah. He's kind of reiterating this judgment on the mountains. And then he'll talk about the lowlands next. Basically, there's not a place where you can hide from the judgment of God. There's not a place where you can go and be safe from his wrath. Yeah. Though, of course, for us as Christians, again, we, we do find that safety from his wrath through Christ himself.
0: Yeah. And this chapter reminds them, uh, in chapter seven, that the, there's just going to be a bloodbath. There's a lot of accusations of, about Judah's pride, their violence, their, their hope and wealth. Uh, even sort of that, that dagger statement, I feel like that it says their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in that day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. And so um, as as a people of a nation that that has a little more subsistence and wealth and affluence, that's certainly a tough accusation. Yeah. So let's look at Hebrews uh, and first Timothy. And so in Hebrews, uh, we're picking up in chapter 12. Uh, and the author starts with this competition analogy, I think, in the sort of games, this race. Uh, and um, in Greco-Roman racing, like you would represent your city, you would represent the God of that city, the patron God. So uh, I think the author's kind of picking up on that idea of like, look, you represent Yahweh in the way you run your race. And just like, even to this day, like Olympians would shave their body hair, long distance runners would be willing to like just collapse across the finish line. Like, like as many have gone before us, go run your rate, this race of life for Jesus and, and shed off anything that's going to keep you from being hindered in this race. And, um, and Jesus finished the race and as Joy set before him, he, he crossed over not only to death, but, but to resurrection. And you too, you follower of Jesus are able to, to endure through death all the way to the other side.
1: Yeah, I mean, we just hit on Hebrews 11, and so we see that we have generations and generations of Christ followers and of god fears who've been through it all, waiting and anticipating their homeland. And so in the same way, following the vein of these others who've gone before us, let's lay aside the things that entangle us and the things that distract us, lay aside our sins and our failures, and run with this end goal of heaven in mind. And we do this every single day with endurance. Endurance is so important and we don't have to grow weary because Jesus went first is our example.
0: Yeah. And and as in running this weight race, it may be hard, it may be difficult, it may make you weary, all this kind of stuff. And uh, the encouragement from, from the author is don't grow weary. And we have one that's training us. And he's also like a good father. So he's like a coach. And he's like a good father in some ways. And um, and, and I think of uh, just just to use the the karate kid analogy I, I think of that mr miyagi kind of training daniel and like daniel doesn't understand it it's hard for him sometimes he's suffering but but ultimately mr miyagi's teaching him these skills even through his his kind of like sanding the floor and working hard days to go like look i am i'm developing you i disciplining your body and I'm creating and maturing you, uh, for you to finish this race well. And I think we, we have that, that picture of a coach, but also a good father, one, just like a a child or a father disciplines her child and the the role of disciplining your child. is not just to punish and punishment might be part of discipline, but, but ultimately the idea of discipline is to shape and to mold and to mature uh, your child into the adulthood that they should. And and I think we get the same thing of God being a good father who's going to shape us and there might be hard things that come our ways, and there might be difficulties and obstacles that, that are in our lives, but they have a purpose. Even our suffering has a purpose to help us reach our finish line. So the encouragement is to lift up your heads, and, and so therefore clear the path out of the way. Live in peace together. Keep striving for holiness. See that others finish the race. Don't let them get bitter along the way, and flee things like sexual morality. Set yourself apart. Don't be led by your impulses.
1: Yeah, think about for a moment just the context of these readers. We can assume they were suffering incredibly, and under all that suffering, they may have been wondering, like, is this really worth it? Is Jesus really worth all the suffering and the punishment we're experiencing? Um, And they may have even thought some of that was from God because they were doing something wrong. Uh, But the author here is saying, you've been here before, you've suffered before. Keep enduring, and remember that God is in this. Don't make it harder on yourself by sinning, but continue to model a life of obedience. And little by little, it's going to become more natural to you.
0: And then we could sort of get the tale of two mountains and how much more like if this crowd is a predominantly Jewish crowd, they're struggling with um, this, this new sense of, of what living under the gospel of Messiah Jesus looks like and leaving behind some of their old ways tied into the law, the law and, and the way the law held him captive the author's playing out that, that dilemma of like, look, we had this old mountain at Sinai, It was fear and dread and shame and terror, but there's other ones like a celebration. Mount Sinai was in the desert, but Mount Zion is a city, a city of living. And there's, there's dwelling, there's permanent community. Mount Sinai was connected to heaven, to earth, but Zion's bringing earth to heaven. It's, it's connecting where God dwells with his people. And, Mount Sinai was fear, and Moses had to go into God's presence, but Zion, we have innumerable angels, festive gathering of the church, and all this sort of play out of this. Like we had a Moses mediator, but Jesus was a much better mediator, fear and terror versus love and forgiveness, law versus grace and old covenant versus a, a new covenant that's been ratified by God's son. And so, um, yeah, you have all this play out that, the, that this crowd would clearly go, Whoa, Mount Zion sounds way, way better than Mount Sinai ever did. And so that's, that's meant to be the play out here of going like, look, come to this mountain It is so much better."
1: yeah and I love how you're saying so much better because this whole theme of this book is better right and so everything that we've read this understanding of Jesus is better than all these things means that unlike Sinai God can be approached our sin is atoned for and our future is not in the Jerusalem we can see but in the Jerusalem that is to come so it's kind of like what we even read about at the end of Joel today a heavenly city filled with people made new a royal priesthood where all are free and worship the living God in perfect unity and this is just it's so cool the Way it culminates in picturing this Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion.
0: And then chapter 13 almost becomes uh, very much how uh, preachers often wrap up sermons where it's like, let me get uh, to a few practical applications, but they're <laughs> going to be a little bit uh, Quick quick hits uh, and so maybe even a little disjointed so the instructions like uh, and I love even the Greek play on uh, language here it's like have Philadelphia and have Philozenia have have a love for brother and have a love for the stranger and show hospitality show concern for the prisoners have healthy marriages don't be greedy trust in God's provision remember submit to your leaders especially those that are imitatable and don't be led astray by false teachings around food and stuff like that like remember this world's not our home so do good share what you have and remember whatever I'm calling you to do, I, I've also walked in myself. And so that's sort of the the culmination of those 19 verses towards the end. Yeah,
1: you know, there is something, there's a command to be free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And I'd never seen a connection before between that instruction and the promise of God's permanent presence. So, in this verse or in this chapter I guess it says that we are to be content with what we have because of God's presence. So next time you covet or wish you had something you don't have respond with lord you will not leave me or forsake me and that is enough.
0: Yeah. And so and then we get a great benediction. I think it's one of my favorites and mm-hmm. it's the god who lives in peace and 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 not just the god that has blood and death. But he focuses on the resurrection too, like this life in Jesus. He's a good shepherd. He makes this eternal covenant and this death accomplished something eternal for you that can't be taken away, this new covenant. So may God equip you to go live all of this out. It's so good.
1: Yeah, and this idea behind equipping. you know, Surely if we believe everything we read that he can save by faith, that he has defeated death and sin for all time, we can trust him with what we need to be faithful and obedient to the life he's called us to.
0: Yeah, so final thoughts
1: still my favorite book in the New (laughs) Testament if I had to pick a favorite book. It's just so rich and it gives such a beautiful Old Testament argument for us of what it means to look forward to heaven and um, there's such a strong emphasis on endurance here and it's essential and it gives us a better knowledge of even what heaven will look like and it gives us hope and promise. So I don't know. I just think that every line is rich and full of these incredible truths that start with Genesis one all the way to eternity.
0: Yeah. It's just such a rich book. And I would argue probably a little underutilized in a lot of, um, church circles. Uh, I think, um, even when we preached through it a couple years ago, I, I feel like I, I remember reading somewhere that it's one of the least preached books in the new Testament. Um, and it's hard because like, there's such a centrality of Jesus throughout the book. There's such a centrality of what it means for him to, to be our atonement. Um, this idea that like, I, I think just about everywhere in the world, christian or not or um all the different religious systems even non-religious systems like everyone's looking to in some ways justify themselves like uh, some worldview that, that says I'm right or I'm okay or I have purpose and significance I can clear my conscience like my brokenness is fine there, there's all these ways and, and this book kind of lays it all out going here's why Jesus is better than any of those other ways particularly the Old Testament way but any of those other ways of justification of of being made right Jesus is so much greater than that and, and so um, it should just instill the sense of worship in your heart
1: yeah I mean it's just everything that we've read and learned about Jesus and this free gift of grace, like learning what I know about other religions or even about like just self kind of worship and idolatry, like why would you want to serve or worship any other God than this God?
0: Yeah, there's so much more freedom. So uh, First Timothy, uh, we pick up, uh, this is not our first, first pastoral letter, because uh, I guess we got uh, Philemon back there, but um, a letter between uh, Paul and Timothy. And uh, this is likely after the end of Acts 28. And and Paul has been in Rome and Timothy has been sent to Ephesus. Uh, and Paul realizes he may not make it back to by Ephesus and decides to write a letter to Timothy, this young disciple of his. If you remember back in the day, Timothy had a Greek dad and a Jewish mother and likely was grew up as a bit of an outsider comes to faith, comes to follow Paul uh, through Paul's preaching and um, likely as young, maybe a teenager um, when he gets called uh, to, to start being coming on missionary journeys and stuff with Paul and be discipled by Paul and Timothy is now, presiding in some way over the church in Ephesus, a big city and likely a pretty big church at this point. Um, And so Paul's giving pastoral advice and care of Mm -hmm. how to deal with erroneous teachings and encouraging Paul, Peter and our, Encouraging Timothy in his call and some of the pastoral situations that he's dealing with. And so um yeah.
1: Yeah, one of the main focuses of this book is that not going to be a surprise to any of us, but that the gospel leads to holiness and practical visible change in our lives.
0: Yeah. And so it it has this great greeting, this sort of um he calls Timothy his true child in his faith. And um I always like that language. We actually have uh, some missionary partners uh, at resonate and um the the younger one uh, came to faith through the older uh, missionary partner, and um, the the younger one always refers to him as his father, and uh, and the older one to his son. It's very endearing, very much like, look, we are a spiritual family, father son together.
1: Yeah. That stood out to me, too, and it made me think of, well, first of all, what we know about Timothy is that his father is Greek, and so it's unlikely, I suppose, that his father is a believer. Um, So I feel like this is the answer to what we read in the Psalms about how God puts the lonely in families. Uh, God has given Timothy a father in Paul and given Paul a son in Timothy.
0: Yeah. And then uh, there's some warnings about those who are going down the roads of mythology and genealogies and um, prob- probably majoring in the minors as one of the phrases we call it, uh, like focusing <laughs> on a bunch of things that are not as important uh, and and no matter what they are. And and we're not totally sure exactly what, maybe what the, the myths and genealogies that they're focusing on, but they're outside issues that seem to be dividing the church. And Paul's like, look, Timothy, make sure you focus on love, like uncontaminated self interests. Like those are, those are worthless conversations that, that seem to be carried on by these people who think they're experts on these things, but, but you need to focus on what is central. And, and yes, there's still room for like moral instruction. Maybe there's room for debate around like the morals and how they play out within the good news of Jesus. But, but, but be careful that, that you don't go down these rabbit trails that are totally not worth it.
1: Yeah, and I think it's easy for us to do too. It's easy for us to get fixated on things that we can call black and white and linear, and we forget the heart and the love behind the God we follow, and we make it about rules. Uh, but even these rules expose our need for our Savior.
0: Um. But then speaking of rules, Paul sort of circles around being like, speaking of like morals and immorality, like I was the chief of them all, Timothy. Like you knew this. Like, and, and Christ showed a tremendous amount of grace and mercy. Like, and, and I think Paul even has this perspective on himself to be like, you know why Christ saved me? Like I was the murderer. I was persecuting his church. I, like I, I was enemy number one to the church at one point, but God desiring to show just how merciful he can be saved me. And so if he could save me, enemy number one of his people, he can save anyone. And so, um, and, and then he moves on saying, Timothy, and now I like, this is your charge too. Like you're going to continue this and you're going to engage in warfare and hold, hold strong in the faith as, as you kind of take this baton.
1: Yeah, there seems to be something kind of personal or intimate in the way Timothy or Paul talks about this with Timothy. Like they've had these personal questions before. And Paul's saying, Timothy, you know me. You know what I've had to be saved from. You know the sin that I've walked in. And then he ties it back to what we uh, read further on and what we already read in the beginning of First Timothy, is that Timothy's task is to wage the good warfare that comes from faith and a good conscience, which is made pure by Christ. So basically he's saying, It's not going to be easy and you're gonna see lots of people walk away. But Paul says to him, I'm with you in it. Don't forget what you've been saved from. Yeah.
0: Psalm 54.
1: Yeah. So I think there's something really helpful about the way David cries out for help. He prays for deliverance from a place of faith that he will be delivered. I think we can also pray in the same way at times, asking God for what we need with the faith and confidence that he will actually provide it.
0: Yeah. And even the setting of the Psalm and the opening line is given from uh, pretty much a straight quote from first, first Samuel 23. And yeah, it's, 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 David calling out to be vindicated that that these opponents are strangers or ruthless or enemies and and he trusts in God to be faithful in this covenant faithfulness. Yeah. Next week.
1: All right. So in Ezekiel, there's going to be talk of a new heart of flesh. So think about what other prophets have talked about this and what is the hope that is meant to be communicated in this part of Ezekiel. And then as you continue through first Timothy, um, and you, you're going to get Paul's heart for Timothy and his love for the church and practicals about how to be the kind of church that is honoring God. So think about this in modern day. How do you see those characteristics playing out in your own church? And what is your own personal role and ownership in serving your church?
0: Yeah. And I'm going to cheat this week and combine my old and new. Um, Ezekiel is going to have a lot to say around the leaders of Judah and all the ways that the leaders, well, of Israel. I think uh, Ezekiel includes a lot of language where he actually combines Israel and Judah back together and, and just the shepherds, the leaders and, and, and he's going to have these moments where he like sees the the priests or he sees the elders and all the, all the things that are doing wrong. And a lot of his condemnation is going to be towards the leadership. And then we're going to read Timothy and Timothy's going to start talking about leadership and the leaders of the church and what makes a good leader. Um, and it's interesting to, to kind of watch him talk about it and, and notice what Paul's emphasis is. Is it competency? Is it a lot of excellence and excellence and task and execution, or is it character? Is it the things that would, um, would have ultimately protected maybe Israel from getting into the trouble that they got into, um, and, and what is the one competency that really is mentioned of all the, any competency. Um, and so, um, as you, as you read through leadership, think through that, because I think sometimes we still fall into a default, particularly here in America of like, um, excellence in leadership is really people who are amazing at executing on tasks. And I think the church has a little bit of a different um, mindset of probably priority, uh, when it comes to, to their leadership. Cool. All right. That's it. Thanks y'all.
1: Thank you.